for the final episode in series two of Living Adventurously, this series of interviews very loosely linked around the idea of adventure with purpose, trying to make the outdoor world, the adventure world, a better place. I chatted from my treehouse with Jack Thurston. Jack is a cyclist, a food lover, a photographer, a guidebook writer, and an early pioneer of podcasting, with his bike show podcast having been on the air since dinosaurs were around back in 2005. I really wanted to talk to Jack about having adventures close to home rather than flying off to faraway lands and to get his perspective on what the world of adventure looks like in the 21st century. I also asked Jack about what makes a good interview, what makes a good cycle route, and what a wise touring cyclist who loves food should tuck away in their panniers. Today's episode is brought to you by Trees for Cities, a charity working to inspire local communities to radically transform their urban spaces by planting and protecting trees. Whether you're looking to take on the climate crisis in your town or city, get together with other like-minded people passionate about community action, or to help educate the next generation about the importance of nature, Trees for Cities can give you the chance to take real action at one of their fantastic community volunteering events. Visit treesforcities.org to find out more. Hello, Jack. I feel like this is a poacher turned gamekeeper now. So we first met when you were interviewing me long, long ago. Actually, 12 years and one day ago, (laughs) uh, you interviewed me. um, And now I'm interviewing you. So when I got in touch with you to say, could I do a Zoom lockdown podcast chat with you? You said, we can do better than that because we're both audio professionals. I think you kind why don't we record somewhere much more interesting? So I have ventured forth from my shed. I am now currently sitting five meters off the ground in a tree house in a windy uh, sycamore tree. Um, I call it a tree house. It's just actually a platform, uh, but I'm up in the windy tree house. Where, where are you today, Jack? So I am on the edge of Abergavenny in southeast Wales, where I live. Um, our house is... Or is the last house in the town before you reach the Brecon Beacons National Park and the kind of countryside. And at the back of the garden, there is a tunnel which goes under the lane and emerges into a patch of kind of rough land that we call the secret garden that's kind of got apple trees in it, um, a little stream running through it, um, silver birch tree that I'm sitting under, a couple of big ash trees and there's a stream that runs down off the Sugarloaf Mountain, which is Abergavenny's, a big mountain, um, down one side of the piece of land. And um, you might be able to pick up some of that on the uh, recording, I don't know. I can hear a little bit of it. It's very close. Um, it's a very misty, thundery, warm... Oh, I've just seen a dragonfly zipping about in the air there. That fits right, <laughs> that fits right in. I can see in the distance the Blorange Mountain... But the top of it is is sort of covered, obscured by mist. So that's how low the, the cloud is, or low cloud, I should say, rather than mist. So 
Um, yeah, I'm not up a mountain, partly because I was expecting it potentially to open up with thunder and <laughs> downpour, and I thought I might have to take a, a run for it. But um, I am, yeah, I'm out in our secret garden underneath the apple That's trees. It. Oh, it's a beautiful place to be. I can see nothing except a tree. I'm fully surrounded <laughs> by leaves, but I do have a patch of sky above me which looks ominously black as though some apocalyptic August thunderstorm might unleash any time. So um, we'll see how we get on. Yeah, are the birds putting <laughs> um, themselves to bed? Because we're in the evening, aren't we, at the moment? Are the birds putting themselves to bed where you are? Yes, they are, yeah. In the evening's starting to draw in a bit, late summer. So, yeah, there's birds and pigeons tweeting away, so... Yeah, so you you chose well, a good idea, much better than sitting in my sweaty <laughs> shed. <laughs> um, right, Jack, the um, the bike show is a it's a cycling podcast that began life probably even before the word podcast began back in two thousand and four. Um, you've had four million downloads. It's been going for a long, long time. So, I thought my first question should be to ask you, as a true veteran, what advice can you give me to make my fledgling podcast better? <laughs> well, the bike show has been going for a long time. I started putting it out on a, as a podcast in 2005 after a listener got in touch and said, um, can you make this radio show that, that I was doing on Resonance FM in London, which is an art radio station that broadcasts on a community FM license from London Bridge. Uh, could you make it available on the internet so that anyone around the world could listen to it whenever they want? And there's this technology called podcasting, which yeah. would let you do that. And so I kind of read up on it and, and you know, thought, oh, that looks sensible. And then actually the, the radio show kind of morphed into a podcast. The, the podcast listenership became much bigger and much more enthusiastic in a way than whoever was listening on FM. And yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm the right person to ask because I really missed the boat on kind of the whole boom in podcasting a few years ago um, when, you know, people started getting podcasts, podcasts sponsored and paid to do podcasting. I mean, my podcast doesn't make me any money. It actually, well, I guess it costs me money to do it, um, which is probably why it doesn't happen very much anymore. Um, I just think you have to do something that you love doing. Most podcasts don't make money for their creators, um, but I think everyone who does a podcast that's successful loves the podcast. So it's kind of like, you know, you've got the, the price of entry to a podcast, whether it's, you know, one that's going to make you money or one that's just going to keep you entertained and amused is that you love it. You, you, know, you don't want to pick something that you're not interested in or a format that, you know, makes you cringe or die inside. <laughs> and then I think just go with the flow. Um, I mean, you're tremendous at publicizing yours and getting it out there through all the distribution channels. I think I would say one thing that differentiates the bike show from a lot of other podcasts is that I try and take it outside of the studio and into the world and pick up a lot of sounds from the world and describe my experiences on a bicycle, whether it's on my own or whether it's with other people, um, in, in a way that brings a, a lot of the colour of the world, the sonic colour of the world to life. And rather than just so being not, a kind of conversation in a, in, a, you know, in a studio or on a Zoom call. You're not too worried then about that sort of sterile audio perfection? I think it's a different kind of audio perfection. Um, mm. Yeah, I mean, mm. obviously, if you're doing doing bits of voiceover, you know, you want to have that as as dry and as 
you know, free of anything else than your voice as you possibly can. And there are lots of ways of doing that, mainly throwing a duvet over your head and the microphone. Oh, sweating, sweating away. <laughs> yes. yeah. Sweating away as you fluff your lines for the 15th time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we've all been there. But actually, I don't think it really matters that much. I mean, some, I do a lot of my introductions and things like that out in the world. And I think people, if, as long as the sound is kind of interesting or, or, and you're able to engage with it and not feel like it's an unexpected disturbance into what you're doing, but it actually advances the narrative in some way or takes the story or the action on in, a, in an unexpected direction, then, it, mm. then I think it's fun. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that you have to do that. Um, and then obviously the New York Times daily podcast or whatever the great big successful ones are, you know, are studio based. But I think getting out there and recording sounds is a way of differentiating your own podcast from a lot of discussion podcasts that there are and try and record things in a way that's, you know, sounds good and sounds good to your ears. So, you know, a good microphone and, um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think there's lots of. I mean, one of the, the beautiful things about podcasting is that every podcast can have a different format. It doesn't have to meet a standard or a house sound of a radio yes. station or whatever. And I think if that format is consistent with who you are and is a is a true expression of of your point of view mm. um, and amplifies it, then then you know that's that's the way to go. Yeah, it is pleasingly anything goes if you can find a niche for that isn't it so what what have you learned about um asking good asking better questions as over your years of asking people questions i think asking open questions is really important so asking people how they feel about something or how they felt about something if you're getting someone to tell a story about something that's happened to them which is often what you know what you're doing um getting into not just the facts you know you need to be aware of the facts and you need to know where the story goes but you're interested in them telling it not because they're going to get the facts better than you would which they they might do but probably not much difference but they'll get the emotion and what it meant to them and that's what's interesting in a first person narrative i suppose um, so yeah, asking about feeling people's feelings at the time, trying to transport them back to the moment when something happened. Um, that's important. I think it's really important to listen to the answers, but then also think where that answer is going to take you for your next question so that it, if the conversation evolves in a way that is structured, but seems natural. And that is a really hard thing to pull off. Yeah, I've, I've been amazed how many things you have to think about. You're sort of fiddling with your microphone levels. You're trying to, as you say, listen to what they're saying, but also think about what your next question is. And then you have to decide whether to go with the direction of what they just said or go with the direction you were initially planning on. There's so it's, It really surprised me, actually, how tiring i find it just sitting having a chat with someone so i'm not yeah. sure all the coal miners out there will be particularly sympathetic but it does feel like quite hard work to me when i'm doing them it's certainly a, a lot of mental juggling you've got to keep a, quite a few balls in the air in your mind and also if you're doing it face to face you've got to show an interest in them and encourage them to open up and one yeah. way of doing that is to let silence happen 
because if you let silence happen, more often than not, they will fill it with something really interesting that you may not have thought about asking. Mm. Yeah, that's very interesting. I'm now extremely self-conscious because anyone listening to this now, for the rest of this thing, will be waiting for me to say, Jack, how did that feel? Or or trying to fill some, <laughs> wait for some uh, long silence for you to pour out your heart to me. So I'll, <laughs> we'll see how I get on. Um, <laughs> so you've been, you've been interviewing people for so long about um, cycling and I was scrolling through your archives and there are so many names from blasts from the past from when I used to think of myself as a cyclist. But I really... I don't really feel like a cyclist in any way now. So do you not get bored interviewing people about cycling? Um, I guess it does limit the, you know, choice of candidates for, for an interview. Um, but I think sometimes the, every interview you do leads to a couple of other possible leads and a couple of other possible stories and people. So I thought, how on earth am I going to, do a podcast on cycling that's going to last more than like six episodes initially. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I think I ended up just one thing leading to another thing, led to another thing. Um, and then I guess you realize that you need to give your audience what they're interested in. I mean, I could do a podcast on, you know, Jack Thurston talks to people he finds interesting which, you know, maybe we're really good podcasts. And there are a few podcasts like that where it's it's really diverse. And I suppose Louis Theroux's Grounded podcast during the lockdown was a good example of that, where he just chose people he was interested in. And also Cheryl Strade's one during lockdown was similar and also I thought really good. Yeah, Did so that, that, that? Can, that can absolutely work. But I felt that, you know, I'm not Louis Theroux. I'm not a famous person. Why would they want to come and listen to me? But I have, I suppose, built up a reputation and a certain level of trust in people who, among people who are interested in cycling, that there will be something interesting to listen to if they stick with my podcast. So I suppose it, mm. it just becomes, you know, the niche becomes the place that you inhabit um, but I think cycling has got such a lot of interesting people. And then in, I'm talking in the widest possible sense of cycling. So from a politician who, you know, deals with cycling or maybe doesn't deal with cycling, but happens to bike to work to someone who's, you know, been the fastest person in the world on a bike to someone who's a town planner, who's changed the, their ta the town or the city where they live and they worked for the better someone who's cycled around the world someone who's cooks the lunches for the people on the grand tours the tour de france you know th there are lots of different mm. um aspects to it and, th and that's just a few really um, and then obviously yeah. cycling is it's just a method of travel and a method of inter a method of interacting with people and with the world and with landscape that i find very appealing and i guess i could just go on a bicycle and travel about and make podcasts like about my travels and in a sense I have done that a few times and there have been some brilliant podcasts not by me um, a French broadcaster called Raphael Kraft did uh, some great podcasts from his bicycle um, in the Caribbean and also in France during an election year and it just I don't know it just breaks down barriers the bicycle I think um, and, and gets you places and gets you unexpected places. You know, you're not cut off from the world. So in that sense, it is a good format for um, 
having experiences and if you're able to capture those experiences in some way in audio then you're you're not really making a cycling specific podcast you're just making a podcast about the human condition and yeah. the world that happens to be from the seat of a bicycle which i think yes. is which is the which is much more how i feel you relate to the bicycle the, the bicycle was the right tool for the job that you were doing which was to travel around the world at a pace that would enable you to take it all in and for a price that you were able to afford yes yeah exactly it's just a a immersive way of traveling it's it's fast but not too fast slow but not too slow painful but not too painful it's just but yeah the perfect way of traveling um you um i mean what sort of cyclist are you on the scale from say bradley wiggins to granny riding to the shops do you do you put yourself into any category of cyclist i would say that i'm a touring cyclist and a utility cyclist so i um, I get around town where I live on a bike. I take my kids who are five and seven to school on the bike. I do the shopping on the bike um, and I go for rides in the countryside for, you know, a couple of hours up to a couple of weeks on a bike. And I write books about cycle touring, I suppose you could call it. Um, and so I would consider myself a I'm not, I mean, I have raced a bicycle. I have raced in triathlons and I have raced in hill climbs and I've done a few time trials, but, you know, not with any great success <laughs> yeah. or preparation. Said, I, yeah. I, read, I read on a blog somewhere of yours that, or, that um, you talked about organised cycling, like sportives, races, Audax events, where there's always a reason not to stop about cycling being keeping going. And you say... I'm more interested in the reasons to stop. So, uh, and I think that's reflected in your book. It's more, it seems to be more about the opportunities to stop than the opportunities to pedal lots of miles. Yeah, I think that's, um, I think that's a good observation um, of, of my attitude. Um, yeah, I think it's a form of travel. It's a form of travel that suits my disposition. It's, it's easier than walking. You can travel further for less effort than you can when you're walking. Um, and you can stop and take a photograph without having to worry about where to park a car. Um, you know, you, you can smell everything as you go past. You can wild camp really easily. You can get out of trouble really easily. So, yeah, I think it's a kind of the perfect vehicle for traveling at the speed of the land and at the speed mm. of my mind, because I do think that walking is probably a bit, I know you've done a lot of walking, Al, so you can speak up for walking, but I find that walking maybe a little bit too slow and a little bit too much like hard work. I mean, I have done yeah, some walks. I totally agree. But, um, the horizon is a very long way away on your feet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it is incredible to, to look as far as you can see on a bicycle. <laughs> and say, I'll probably be there by, you know, by lunchtime. Mm. Whereas on a, on a walk, and I've, I've done a, you know, I've done a walk in the, I did a walk in the Himalayas where I walked from like near sea level or, or in the plains of, of kind of Nepal up to Makalu base camp, um, which took a couple of weeks. And, you know, that was an amazing thing to do. And you couldn't have done really done that on a bike, but it was, 
it was a lot of effort, you know, just walking all day. Whereas I don't find cycling all day to be as much as much effort, especially carrying no, stuff. Just, like it really wears your shoulders down carrying a big pack, doesn't it? Yeah, it certainly does. Yeah. So here's a question which uh, is guaranteed to get people angry in either side of the fence. So I'm going to give you a limit of 20 seconds to answer it and then we'll change subjects. Um, why don't you wear a helmet when you're cycling? I sometimes wear a helmet when I'm cycling. I always wear a helmet when but I'm... But you don't in your books. I don't in my books um, because I'm doing a kind of very relaxed form of cycling um, where I don't feel like there's any risk of anything happening to me that a helmet would, you know, save me in, in any way. Um, if I'm on a mountain bike and I might fall off, then I do wear a helmet. If I'm riding <laughs> with my road club and I'm riding in a small pack and we're going at like, you know, uh, uh, the, you know, the local cycling club go, going fast, then I do wear a helmet. Um, but generally I don't. There are people in my books who have helmets and there are people in the books who don't have helmets. Um, so I think that reflects the state of affairs in cycling in this country, to be honest. It's a matter of personal choice. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I agree. I, I, I limited this question because whenever I do anything on the internet that doesn't have me in a helmet, people get very angry, but we'll move on to a much more interesting topic, which is you put this little picture on Instagram recently of what you, I'd never heard of it, a pot belge beloved of racing cyclists, which is your cycling touring, cycle touring magic potion. This is a little jar and I'll read your recipe, a mix of chili oil, homemade with rapeseed oil, gochugang, ginger and sesame seeds, light and dark soy sauce, and chinkiang vinegar. I sometimes add a bit of minced garlic and ginger. Now this sounds to me like you have mastered the art of lightweight, yet not disgusting, cycle touring cooking. <laughs> yeah, well, it's a recipe that I borrowed from a brilliant book by a brilliant author called Fuchsia Dunlop. I've just got a car going past on the lane here. Um, and she's, yeah, the book's called every grain of rice and it's about Sichuanese cooking which is the region of western China where things get quite spicy in Chinese cooking and um, I, I just love it. She has it in a recipe for that she calls fuchsia's emergency noodles so emergency late night noodles so when there's like nothing in the house <laughs> and she comes home from like being out drinking or whatever and she just needs something to just you know take away the hunger and so yeah i just mixed it up in a in a little batch and take it with me and you just sprinkle it over noodles with anything else and it just makes it utterly delicious i mean i have got quite a few little things that i like to take i like to take tins of sardines with me because i think they meet a real need a nutritional need but also a kind of flavor saltiness need and they're quite packable and they last forever um, so yeah, tin of sardines. What else do I take? Um, sometimes takes a bit of marzipan. Um, marzipan. Marzipan. That's the one I borrowed off Graham Obrey. He is he, the Scottish cyclist who is the hour record holder in the 1990s, and he said that with it's, his washing machine yeah, bicycle. Exactly. He said it's the um, highest density of calories possible, but it's also quite nutritionally balanced between like the almonds and the sugar. Um, I sometimes have a bit of that instead of an energy bar. And what else? I can't, I'm blanking a little bit now, Al, but um, Parmesan okay. cheese is quite good. A little block of Parmesan cheese, you know, on pasta, if you're having pasta. Harissa, if you've, if you've got couscous as your kind of basic starch, then a little 
tube of harissa peps that up a bit i mean none of this is exactly you know news to anybody um who you know has an interest in food but i think it's too easy just to have the packet noodle or the kind of vesta's chicken curry that i used to have on my dv expeditions as a <laughs> school child it's just about little things that are simple and, and actually sometimes it's quite difficult to to, to buy stuff for, you know from the spa supermarket or whatever you know a little supermarket that you might find that is at the right size of quantity to to make you know to be useful or in or in a durable bottle so that's why i carry a little vial of cooking oil as well so if i need to fry an egg because eggs are something in, certainly in britain that you find for sale on the roadside regularly and you can absolutely count on being able to get half a dozen eggs but you don't want to be carrying them for too long so you know, I'll tend to risky. fire up the cooker, fry a couple of them, um, and then boil the rest. And, um, you know, that'll keep me going until I find the next lot. So the, the, um, the, the original premise I thought of when I um, asked you to come on this was I'm trying to um, interview people through this series who are doing adventure with some sort of purpose. And what interested me about you um, and your books was exploring cycling adventuring but close to home and therefore something that's really important in our era of climate um, catastrophe uh, but I think now now you're starting to talk about uh, parmesan and uh, cookery tips I'm very tempted to veer off all of my worthy questions about the planet and just ask you to tell me about uh, <laughs> cycle cooking things well I think you've pretty much exhausted my repertoire there Al so okay, uh, that's let's it, get on it. to climate okay. change <laughs> okay yeah because I mean, we've had like this of absurd hazy heat today which at various times it sort of reminds me of dawn cycling in Tanzania or pedaling in the jungle in Guatemala or um, the late afternoons on the Taklamakan desert so there's some good uh, cycle touring name dropping there yeah uh, but the world the world is is clearly on fire and yet really we don't really care and I think those of us I mean me, not you. Those of us in the adventure world, we deeply love the planet, but are still constantly flying off all over the place to get our adventure fixes and thereby trashing places even more. So I was wondering with your um, your Lost Lanes books, is there any conscious reason you're choosing to explore close to home and to encourage others to do the same? Or do you just like cycling around in the UK? I like cycling around in the UK, I like a bike ride that starts and finishes at my front door. Um, I just find that's the easiest way to do it, if if possible. Uh, whether you know, and that could be you know in any direction from where I live or where I happen to live, or hop on a train for some of it. I I don't know. I don't want to get preachy, but I guess I can just tell you where I think it's a bit like the helmet thing. You know, I do what I do and other people can do what they do. And I think we just have to respect our decisions really. But I have done quite a lot of flying in my life. Um, when I was growing up, my dad, um, my parents weren't together when I was growing up and my dad lived in Hong Kong um, for quite a lot of my childhood and I would fly out there or he would fly back uh, to go on holiday. So I've been in a lot of aeroplanes. Um, I used to have some work that I did in America and I would fly over to Washington DC for like a week of work. Um, I've studied in America and I, so I've had to fly out there and I've been on, you know, flight based holidays. And I think something just happened that a few years ago, well, I just felt like I just, this 
makes me feel queasy and like I just think this is a bit nasty given that I knew what was happening to the planet I could see it you know around me and certainly see it the more extreme end of it in terms of news coverage of the ice caps and you know droughts in different parts of the world and the overwhelming scientific evidence and I just it was an aesthetic thing almost rather than a kind of philosophical I just didn't want to do it I just did not feel like I wanted to do it it's a bit like it's a little bit like the relationship I've had with eating meat which I guess is connected a little bit but actually I go into a butcher now and I see all this meat kind of hanging up on the walls and I just don't fancy eating it I just don't fancy buying it very much I mean I, and I'm not I'm not a vegetarian I will sometimes have meat particularly if I'm the guest of somebody else or there's you know there's sort of that's what it, there is but so I mean, it's not hard and fast rule but I just don't fancy it and I the longer you go without having something because you don't like it you don't like the look of it the sort of the easier it becomes I suppose and um, the last flight mm. I took was a couple of years ago with my family to go and visit my sister in Berlin for a week so that um you know yeah to hang out with her and but I've not taken a flight since then and I just don't think I'm probably going to take a flight and I've certainly made a decision that I'm not going to fly for work like so if the Guardian who I write for say you know do you want to go off and cycle around x country for us I'll probably say well I'll definitely say no um and so sometimes these things that I guess for some people seem totally impossible it's actually not very difficult once you kind of do it I've found I suppose but um you know I, I'm not going to cast judgments on other people I mean I think there are a lot of issues relating to adventure that are problematic um and the flying thing is part of it um I mean if you you know to unpack some of this adventure is a quite a useful word to describe the kind of stuff that you know we are interested in which is like being in the outdoors, doing things that are unexpected, doing things that maybe challenge you a little bit, push you into your zone of discomfort, make you aware of things that you you could do that you weren't didn't think you could do. You know, just embrace the unexpected rather than just go and sit by a pool for a fortnight, sort of as a, <laughs> as a leisure pursuit. And I know you get much more into adventure, like in your previous podcast series about like what is adventure, what is an adventurous life. But I actually feel like adventure and i know there's a discussion about this in adventure circles about what is adventure but adventure has to me has an awful lot of baggage from history which i find quite problematic um and and, and i was thinking about how to describe it to you in in this conversation and i suppose it's going to sound probably quite provocative but i do feel that going back to you know 500 years ago adventure is the kind of manifestation of privilege and that's started off with a kind of colonial expansion and the privilege that people felt who had guns and gunpowder and steel and whatnot to lord it over and god to lord it over people who didn't in their view and conquer them and claim their lands or claim lands to, for their own um to 
to and that that mindset went right up to i would say the sort of explorers of the turn of the 20th century who were going out there for queen and country to to conquer things and be there first and all the rest of it and also money um whiteness power these kinds of these kind of privileges are are the preconditions for for adventure because if you were if you were you know if you were scott or whatever you were you know you're kind of well-to-do person scott of the antarctic if you're working for scott as you know one of his you're the hired help really in that kind of feudal or edwardian society you're there for the money because you've got to bring back money for your family Um, and i don't know that they regard adventure in the same way you know maybe there is a certain overlap but I, I think that there's a big problem with that. And I think it's, that's come out a little bit in relief with, with the discussion about Black Lives Matter and lack of diversity in adventure circles. And, and I think it also expresses itself in the, desire, the, the element of adventure, which is about putting yourself in harm's way. And so if you are a person, for one reason or another, who is in harm's way in your everyday life, because you're going to get frisked by the police or because, you're going to, you know, whatever it is, you're going to get killed by the police, then, you know, it's quite understandable to think that you're not going to want to necessarily bungee jump off a cliff or, or put yourself in harm's way even more. Or to take an example around me that I've been thinking a lot about, I go wild camping. It's not legal to wild camp where I wild camp, but I kind of do it because I know that I'll probably be all right. But if I didn't look the way I look, if I was black or asian in a place where there are black or asian people don't go very much or don't live you know i don't know how i'm going to be received um i don't i genuinely don't know um and what the police are going to think of me if the police get called by somebody you know there's a black person on the hill sleeping whatever you know there's all these little things that contribute to what we consider to be adventure and the history of adventure are quite problematic in my view that's an enormous monologue i've just landed you with al but um <laughs> there you go <laughs> it was a it was a it was a broad reaching but very good very good uh, monologue thank you and actually uh, much of what you said there with reference to your the word adventurer for you i have i have a similar sort of slight queasiness in my mind to never call myself an explorer um i know this is just semantics but yeah for the similar sort of issues and i'm very aware of the the privilege slash absurdity of voluntarily or deliberately making my life more basic more hard more of a struggle just because my real normal life is so easy that's often the reason you go off on or i go off on some big adventures so yeah there's a lot of um uh, yeah a lot of issues rolling around which um so that was a very very good monologue but i'm going to pick up on one part of it uh, go back to the flying part um and um actually i should say actually jack that quite a few that the people have been into the, the i was supposed to interview yesterday but i was late which is one of the cardinal sins of life and we had to reschedule because i was talking to uh, rianne the founder of black girls hike um, and it was so interesting talking about her experience of walking around the hills of the uk compared to to mine and all the aspects of that that had never even crossed my cheerful little mind before um but uh, back to flying um um what is great about things like your books the lost lanes is that if you, reading these books and 
tackling I was about to say adventures, I, I won't. Tackling journeys uh, or bike rides from lost lanes to me doesn't in any way anymore to me feel like I'm missing out. I do not feel that I'm missing out on experiences by not flying. And I think that's an increasingly positive aspect of people trying to travel without flying is the realisation that, wow, there's wonder and beauty and all the quirky eccentricity I could ever dream of right on my doorstep. Um, so I think this is a good time then for you to give us, tell us a bit about Lost Lanes. Give me, give me, your, give me your elevator pitch of, of what it is. And also, of course, your sales pitch to flog us all books <laughs> from the, the Lost Lanes series. Yeah. Well, guidebooks about cycling and where to go and, and routes to do have been around since the birth of cycling. I mean, I've got some books that are from the 1890s and the 1880s 38 bike rides around London from 1897 or whatever. Um, so there's nothing new about it. Um, but what I wanted to do with Lost Lanes was to make it a bit more seductive and a bit less practical. I mean, it's, it's, I, I, should say, <laughs> I should say that again. I wanted to make it really seductive and really informative and really inspirational and, and tempting, make people really feel like they wanted to do it. And so I was trying to appeal to an audience of people who with the first one who probably have a bike to cycle to work in London say so they do their kind of 25 minute commute each way on a bike but they'd never thought of throwing their bike on a train at the weekends and then doing 40 or 50 miles around the Kent countryside and that was that was the the brief in a way was to was to make this idea of going out for a for a ride in the countryside around London really appealing so that meant taking nice photographs, really capturing the essence of cycling and relaxed cycling as opposed to sweaty, hard work cycling. The kind of cycling where you're, you know, you're cycling off to eat oysters by the sea rather than to get a Strava king of the mountain or, you know, whatever, <laughs> some sort of victory um, in terms of athletic performance. So, yeah, it was, so it was a lot about photography um, and, and evocative writing um, to try and really put people in the mind for of, of thinking I want to do this um, and it, I guess it, it drew a little bit on my own experience of trying to get my friends to come on bike rides with me because I lived in a house share in London in the 1990s and 2000s with some friends who were, we, we had a circle of friends and I was probably the most into cycling of all of us um, and some friends were not really into cycling at all but they had bikes just to get around London so I would have to convince them of why they should come out with us for a ride and so I had to kind of come up with little stories about the bike ride we were doing or or points of interest or the fact that you know the apple blossom is out and we're going to go through all these orchards or we're going to see six different kinds of windmill or we're going to as I say go and have oysters on the beach or we're going to take a ferry across a river or we're going to have a place where we can go for a swim or a, or a wild camp or whatever so it was really about coming up with a recipe of rides that would be just make people think oh that sounds really fun i really want to do that and present it in a book that was you know appealing and then obviously all the practical information about you know turn left turn right and all that i, I kind of put onto a website so the book could be really about you know firing people up and firing up their imaginations for doing it and then they go to the website and get all the practical information about how you know, where to turn left, where to turn right and whatnot. 
So um, you call it Lost Lanes. Your first one was um, rides vaguely around London. Um, and since then, you've done uh, the Southwest, you've done uh, Wales, and recently you've done um, the north of England. Um, what are some fabulous places you've been to that do not get into the standard top 10 places to go in Britain uh, articles that people like you knock out for the Guardian? <laughs> Very good question, Al. Very good question. Um, <laughs> it's a tricky one because, y you know, you, if you're writing a book about the north of England and you don't, uh, cycling in the north of England, you don't have a couple of rides in the Yorkshire Dales and a couple of rides or more in the Lake District, you, you know, you, people are going to really have missed out on some wonderful experiences. But you're right that there are places that are not on the in, on national parks that are really, really beautiful. Um, I should also say that the, the emphasis on Lost Lanes is, is about cycling on the road, on quiet roads with very little motor traffic and the occasional easy bit of off-road. Um, so that's the kind of that's the remit. That's why it's called Lost Lanes because it's about traffic-free, traffic-free, you know, or, or very, very low traffic cycling. Um, oh my God! I some dogs are going mad up in the hill behind me. I don't know what all that's about. <laughs> I don't know if you can hear them. Um, yeah, I can. <laughs> uh, I don't think we've got hunting at this time of night. We don't really have much hunting around here, fortunately. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I, I would say. I mean, the Yorkshire Wolds are really. I mean, they are an area of, I think they're an area of outstanding natural beauty designation. Maybe not, um, but they're not national park and they are great. Did, um, did you go to Beverly? Have you seen Beverly Minster? Beverly Minster. I didn't go. I've been, I've Beverly. been to Beverly. I didn't have, I don't have a route in Beverly. Um, so that, that is around the Yorkshire Wolds and yeah. I, I cycled through that last summer on my bike and it just absolutely blew me away because I'd never even heard of it before. And then suddenly my bike just brings me right in front of this absolutely spectacular Gothic beauty. And yeah, I knew nothing about the, the Yorkshire Wolds. So yeah, I'll give you, that's a, a good choice, that one. Yeah, I think, so the Yorkshire Wolds are good. Um, the, the Somerset Levels are a good place to ride a bike because they're completely flat. Um, and obviously <laughs> you might get a terrible headwind if the wind's blowing strong westerly or something like that, but they are easy cycling on and there's some quiet lanes and there's also some interesting stuff around. You've got Cheddar Gorge, you've got Glastonbury Tor, um, you've got kind of hills in all directions and the sea at, at, the, other, at, the, at the north. Um, and that's a maybe a little bit overlooked, I suppose. Um, anywhere, in, anywhere in Devon, <laughs> I mean, Devon is just great. Um, um, if, I think, and, and, and the English... The English home counties has actually got a very high density of of lanes. And I say there's a ride which of all the routes that I've done in all four books that I get the most comments of from people of like, whoa, I never knew this place existed. And this is the Darrant, which you probably know it's quite near you, uh, the Darrant Valley in Kent, North Kent, that goes okay. south of, from, well, it basically goes, I think it's... Um, Dart, is it dark? Oh, I'm, I'm going to make making a slip up here where it enters the Thames. But it's basically around Framlingham, um, Ainsford, Shoreham, uh, just north of Sevenoaks. So basically north of Sevenoaks. So it's within the M25. It's this wonderful pastoral idyll of a valley. Um, it's where Samuel Palmer and the other his sort of circle of artists um, went 
uh, to get out of London um, and paint sort of scenes of sort of pastoral awakenings. Um, and it's, it's amazing. Nice. And you could ride there from, you know, from Southeast London very easily. So I'd say the Darrant Valley is, is, a, is a little gem. Um, but, okay. you know, I think there are, pla- there are pockets all around the country that are mm. beautiful. Yeah. Since I started doing my micro-adventure stuff, it's that discovery of how many pockets of beauty there are that becomes a, a real abundance, really. Um, I want to ask you about planning adventures, because I get, I don't know about you, but I get asked so many questions from people essentially saying, I want to go on an adventure, but I don't know what to do. But for me, choosing routes, coming up with adventure ideas, that feels like an instinctive, easy and joyful part of things for me and I, I love that part of it so how do you plan the 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 uh, the lost lanes routes yeah well I wouldn't go as far as to say that they're adventures in any way um but well I'm, I'm hesitant <laughs> to use this word now <laughs> well no I mean even even you know if we if we you know decolonialize outing de-privilege the concept of adventure or we put all those <laughs> things as asterisks okay. about it so wh- what do you what do you call them then what makes a good route what makes a good bike route I mean, this is something that I ask um, a lot of people who design bike routes, um, Ordax organizers. Um, I ask them, you know, what, what makes a good Ordax route? And they often say something to me which is a little bit cryptic. And they say it's got to have a good sense of flow. And I was like, what does that mean? And I, but I kind of understand that, you, you know, you want, you want a ride which doesn't have all the cl- climbing, like, you know, at the beginning or the end. Um, you want a ride which goes through a number of different landscape types, I suppose, and has transitions and reveals and good vis- good vistas from, from hi- hill country. So, you know, hills are important because that's where you can see further. So it's, you know, good, good, good to get, get you up a little bit if you, if you can, up a bit of elevation. And then i think you know the starting point for my routes i try to make them start near train stations as much as is feasible these days um because i think it's good that people can take it could take public transport if they possibly can rather than requiring people to drive with their car with the bikes on the car um and i try to make them start in places that are kind of interesting and nice places to stay so the idea being that if you read the book and you say, oh, well, I'm going to go and do a weekend in this little town and we can do a ride on the Saturday and on Sunday we can just pootle around the bookshops and have a coffee or whatever. Um, so they're kind of nice, nice places to start. And I think, yeah, this sense of flow, the sense of having been on a journey, of having discovered something about the surroundings that you're in um, is important and putting the putting yeah not putting all the hills at the end i think is important and, and there's a there's an interesting question about where which is the best way to go up a hill like do you is it better oh. is it better to go up the the if you've got a hill that's got like a classic escarpment type hill where you've got a shallow side and a really steep side is it better to go up the up the shallow climb for a long long time and then really fast no. down the steep side or is it better to kind of get the get it over and done with um and then and then enjoy a long long nice long descent oh, maximum steepness of ascent and then descent 
any descent that's so steep you have to use your brakes is a massive waste of um, super noodle power or, or a parmesan power. Uh, that's my that's my theory. Yeah, that. that is the correct answer. Um, and that, and that's, it is borne out by both physics and psychology. Um, <laughs> yes. Because if, even if yeah. you have to get off and walk, it's, you know, it's not going to take you very long to get to the top of a very steep hill. Yes, so and you will enjoy exactly. that descent i mean and that's you know so when i had the, the yorkshire dales in um your part of the world um or your origins um you know going up park rash um is a is a stiff climb but then the reward is just a wonderful descent down into kettlewell and then likewise you send them up um i'm sorry i'm not i'm at fleet moss down into kettlewell and then then park rash down through coverdale um, into Wensleydale. So, yeah, I mean, you, you do the hard work or the walk or the hard walk and then you just enjoy the uh, the payoff uh, on a long descent. <laughs> so, yeah, I guess getting the hills in the right direction is is important as well. <laughs> and then good, you know, good pubs, good tea rooms, interesting ancient things along the way you know i like a i love a i love a stone circle or a or a hill fort or a ruin you know i find that places that you could just drop into without having to pay you know 18 quid to the national trust to you know because obviously if you're going to go to fountains abbey you're going to pay your money and stay there all day because it's amazing but if you're on a 60 mile bike ride you know maybe a less a lesser ruin that you can just sort of walk in for free and and come out 15 minutes later is more suitable Oh, God, that answer then just opened up about two hours worth of stuff that I would like to chat to you in the pub about. I've just bought a book. It's about 500 pages of, it's something like the, oh, I only got it yesterday. I forgot already. The British Guide to Pilgrim Places, essentially. It's mm. 500 pages of pilgrimage stuff from thousands of years of history. And I'm, I'm not at all religious, but I love just having any ancient thing to poke my nose into for five minutes while yeah. I eat eat a banana and then pedal on somewhere else. Yeah. So, I mean, if you're um, doing a longer journey, um, then coming up with some sort of framework for that journey or some sort of quest is interesting. I mean, I'm, I often think back to um, T.E. Lawrence, who, you know, I guess you could put him down in the adventure category. Um, he, when he was, before he took up motorcycling, which is what eventually killed him, um, he was, he, he used to ride a bike and he did a, a couple of really great tours around France when he was a student um, looking at Crusader castles and doing sketches of them and so you know he 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 said i want to go to all these crusader castles i want to learn about the fortifications because he was really into that and so i think yeah coming up with a, a framework of something you're really interested in a little quest um or, or even you just create a create one if you're not if you're not you know if there's nothing if you're not really into crusader castles like t e. lawrence was but you know <laughs> maybe you're gonna i mean there's a you know wonderful book out now uh, by felicity uh, cloak the Guardian food writer called One More Croissant for the Road. And that's her touring around France on a bicycle, you know, in search of the perfect croissant, uh, that kind of thing. Um, um, or, or following, I mean, I, I like, I've done a couple of rides, you know, very much in your sort of way of thinking about things, following a river from the, from the source to the sea. And then the river becomes a kind of additional character in your journey who you can kind of relate to as you see it grow from little trickling stream into broad meandering river and then finally into the estuary or an old mm. pilgrimage route or an old drove road or you know follow the you know the drove roads from wales to smithfield market or some ancient way um you know there's a lot there's there's lots of uh, 
ways and lines in the landscape from history um, that you you know you can retrace. But you, watersheds, wa- Roman roads. Yeah, watersheds. I think you did. You do one where you walked around a county boundary or beating the bounds because that's isn't that the tra- traditional practice in medieval times yeah, be- of of beating the bounds of a parish. But on a, a parish is yeah. probably not big enough on a bike. Um, but so you could you know beat the bounds of a county and and all this is really. It encourages you to just pull out a really, really good map, ordnance survey maps, and just just lose yourself in it and come up with things that jump out at you from the map. And I think the more you do it, the easier it becomes to spot these these things. Well, your your um, guidebook readers will know they're in very very uh, safe hands. You've put a lot of thought into pubs ascents ascent gradients all that sort of thing um as usual i've totally mismanaged the timings of what i wanted to talk to you about i haven't got onto photography or the dark arts of trying to take photographs of yourself whilst on a bicycle (laughs) or lots of other things i wanted to and it is now up in my tree almost dark i presume darkness is striking whales so i'm conscious i'm conscious that bedtime is looming there's a bat flying overhead yeah bats are out fantastic but i feel i can't as you, I, I it would be remiss of me i think not to uh, ask you a few final questions from i've got this deck of cards oh, yeah. of questions that i ask most guests on my podcast when i don't run out of time and although i've run out of time because you're a podcast man i want to ask you a few if that's yeah. okay and also if i can actually see well you can al- my- you can always edit any of the of the rubbish that I've said to to get yourself within time. I've I've not I've not got anything I need to do now, Al. So uh, seriously, okay. you can if if you can you can you, if you've got more that you want to ask me about and you want to cut out some of the the other stuff, you know I, that's I, your I that's just, your um your, that's absolutely your privilege as the podcaster. I decided right at the start of my podcasting that I was going to not edit anything, and that was purely out of lazy pragmatism. Oh, you should just, edit. You should edit. Well, I mean, sorry, edit in terms of audio quality, but I decided at the start I was not going to go chopping people's answers up and chopping out boring bits. Oh, I, just, I think you should I chop out the boring bits. Please chop out my boring I, bits. <laughs> I, 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 please, I, I implore I, I, I you. I implore you. I haven't got... I haven't got time to chop out all your boring bits, Jack, I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> uh, There'll so be nothing I decided left. Early, yeah, I decided early on that I'm, that's just the way I'm going to do okay. it. Also, interesting. I found it interesting trying to choose what length of podcast to do and in the end i just had to think what length do i like listening to and i generally like listening to about 30 to 45 minutes and yet i get an increasing number of complaints is too strong a word but people saying they're all too short yeah so, well yeah um, this the tim ferris i know you're a bit of a sort of love hate uh, fan of um and he does really long ones doesn't he they're far too long, mostly because he talks about himself throughout them. Um, and then that guy... Anyway, so anyway, I'm going to ask you a few questions from on. my deck of cards. Although, gosh, I can hardly see them. I've, I've recently got reading glasses. I'm getting so old. <laughs> right. I'm going to have to do it by the light of... Hang on. Here we go. Put okay. the torch on. I'm in my treehouse. Oh, I've got the head the torch, torch Love on. it. This feels like an adventure now. Yeah. Right. First question from at random... How would your life be different if you were a millionaire? Perhaps you are the amount of books oh, you sell. Dear, no way. I mean, that's an interesting question. And it, it's something that, yeah, financial security is something that I worry about a little bit. 
Um, and I'm a big fan in the business you're in. Oh yeah, because I basically, you know, yeah. I mean, I, I I sacked off my, you know, proper work almost ten years ago, and started writing guidebooks and bringing up my children, um, which you know is massively reduced. I've never I've never earned less in my life than I'm learning <laughs> than I've earned in my ninety in my forties. And in your forties, you're supposed to be at the peak of your earning power. And you know, do you say that with pride? Though? Well, no, not really. It's it's worrying. Mm. It is worrying. Okay. Um, but I kind of I, I just I've read a big fan of a guy called, well, his website's called Mr. Money Mustache. Have you heard of I him? I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, yeah. it's great. Yeah, so the, very the good, practice of the practice of of what he does, you know, and I obviously wish I'd discovered it in my twenties because then I could have, you know played a blinder and not wasted my money buying records and things like that <laughs> um, and doing all the stuff I did in those days um, when I was earning more um, and yeah so yeah but his ideas on kind of frugal living and and you know calculating the real cost of things in terms of money and time and adjusting your your lifestyle um, which is, is a terrible word, but this is what it actually means. It's like how the way you live, adjusting it to a way, a, a, a budget that is more sustainable. If, you know, in his case, the idea is that you, you, you earn a lot more than you spend and you pack it all away and that sets you up for your, you know, your retirement, your early retirement. Um, but if you're getting by on, on quite a low income because you're doing something stupid like, writing guidebooks um <laughs> then you know it, it becomes a necessity to to have a frugal lifestyle but i don't feel like my life is is any less rich because you know i drive a crappy car um that you know we you know we've done we, we you know we haven't got lots of new things and uh, we don't go on expensive holidays um we do a lot of home cooking or i don't eat out much um i grow a lot of vegetables and fruits in my garden you know these are all things that i actually quite uh, you know, I actually quite enjoy doing. Um, and I think there's, a, you know, a pleasure to that. And it's not about having a hair shirt and making life miserable for yourself. But I think, yeah, I, so I don't know if I was a millionaire, I don't know, I don't think I would actually change a huge lot. I think I'd probably just have a little bit less worry about how, what the future's going to be, I suppose. And, and I, I think you just have records. to put that, put that, I don't think I'd spend it on extra stuff, really. Um, I think I would just have it there as like, a oh, that's quite lucky that that's there, um, I kind of, you know, I'll just carry on. Mm. Nice. It sounds like you're in a good place in your Welsh mountains. Well, I mean, I'd like to have the million if it's available. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll see, how, we'll see how well this podcast does. I'll, re I'll remember you. Um, right, next question from the Lucky Deck. Um, tell me about the last silly or small thing that brought you contentment or joy. I think it was this afternoon. Um, I um, I did the. Th well, I went took my son shopping um, to do you know the the family shop, and he kind of looked at me with his big brown eyes. He's a seven at the, the magazine section in the supermarket, and so I ended up having <laughs> to buy. So I've been just talking about extreme frugality and whatnot, and now I'm saying I'm buying those children's <laughs> magazines for my kids. <laughs> but they're quite. It's quite exceptional that I should I should do that. But I bought. I bought one for each of them um, and he got Star Wars and, and my daughter, who's five, got a kind of a National Geographic kids or whatever. And it had a packet of slime powder as the free gift. 
Um, and I hate those free gifts, the plastic ones. So I only get ones that are going to last forever, like Lego or, or something like this. There's this slime. So we made up a batch of slime, my daughter and I, at the kitchen table this afternoon. And she played with it with a load of kitchen implements. And just the look on her face, just working with this strange green stuff that was slightly glowing and like dripping off things and through colanders and through sieves in a really weird way um i don't know it was just really it was just really fun it was just one of those moments of bonding with your child that mm. i don't know just i don't know just you just forget everything else in life and you just feel very 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 lucky to be you know to be there oh i think you definitely got your value for money out of that magazine yeah Okay, next question. That's a very good answer, by the way, Jack. Next question. What is an absurd thing that you love and you can't answer slime? <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. I feel like I'm quite a rationalist and I feel like my preferences and the things I like are all quite justified by empirical analysis. <laughs> um, okay. I guess I could say rim brakes no on my bike like I, i'm quite i quite like old i mean traditional stuff just because i find it a bit simple um um and sort of but that's and a lot of people think i'm absurd for not riding with disc brakes um but i don't know that maybe that's i not... hate i hate disc brakes i'm still hoping they're going to go away <laughs> i don't think they are man i think they've lost <laughs> okay but i did oh, i mean i have yeah. i have had a custom bike made um by a friend of mine in west wales for lost doing lost lane stuff and it's got rim brakes but now i'm just worried about the rims wearing out the whole time Ooh, um nice. give your give your bike making friend a plug um he's called richard hallett and he is down in yeah flanders seal or nearby there um yeah. and makes excellent bikes out of steel in a in an old cow shed um i love following people on instagram who are very talented at very niche things that i don't really understand but i can appreciate the skill art and beauty of them yeah uh, and the pa and the patience required yeah of, and i'm lacking in all of those yeah. things no, I, I was thinking about because i was thinking about your journey in in becoming you know a violin player and walking across <laughs> spain and 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 you know what i'm into in terms of i put vegetable growing or whatever and i think it's really important and i don't know if this is a component of the of the adventurous life to have some kind of thing that you do that is basically a lifelong practice or journey um so that could be learning a musical instrument and then playing a musical instrument and 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 developing your your talent and your enjoyment it could be learning a language and continuing to practice that language or learning how to make things out of wood but something that you can't that isn't a life hack or a quick fix or something that you know is a very transitory instant thing that is is the stuff of of you know the digital world in some ways so having something and it and there are lots of different things that they that that that, that could be that that you you know you will in your lifetime you'll never perfect it you'll never say okay i've i've done i've i've done violin playing playing i mean you might say i've done yeah. violin playing because i've had enough of it but you if if you if you enjoy it you could always be a better more accomplished violin player um every, or or speaker of a, a a language that isn't your mother tongue or bread baker or something like that that is a long term commitment 
in that becomes part of your life and part of your existence i think it's quite humbling and i think it's quite important to have those things in life i don't know what you think about that well it's interesting isn't it because they are all things that i very much love and yet when you the, there's the, the downside of turning your hobby into a job um i mean when you're when you're out doing your lost lanes does that feel like your hobby bike riding and looking at geeky stuff or does it sometimes feel a burden of work no it still feels a joy and i feel so happy when i'm on the road and it's been so te- desperately painful being in lockdown obviously you know totally easy being in lockdown in Abergavenny on the edge of the Black Mountains you know with the kids whatever being wonderful and lovely most of the time um but uh, but but this this spring and summer has just been the one of the best in memory um in terms of weather and I could have done so much of research for the next book already if I'd have been able to and and I really you know and, and, and all those places that I'd have discovered um, and new roads that I'd have ridden it, it would have been wonderful um, so yeah it's still it's still pure pleasure it's the writing it up bit that fills me with a bit of dread there's always an awful thing when you open that new document and it's like this is where a book <laughs> has got to be eventually and you've got like three months to do it <laughs> you know that's horrible that just makes you feel sick <laughs> yes yes yeah i know that feeling well well this this um i never wanted to do a remote podcast series i absolutely adored my cycling around yorkshire chatting to people and my plan for this summer had been to cycle around wales chatting to people but that didn't come to pass and so i spent the uh lockdown time doing these um series two of my podcast via zoom or finally up a treehouse <laughs> thanks to you um and uh, and actually you are the very final interview of series two so um this you are the very end of the second series so all five of my listeners will probably have stopped listening by this point um but i think it's quite an honor uh, or not an honor that's that's a it's a it's nice for me to have you as the the final um guest of the series um but interesting also because uh, you were my fir- the, the first ever podcast i went on was interviewed by you so the last question i'm going to ask you from my deck of cards is because you are a man who has a lot of good answers for this is what book should I read to make me more wild, bold, and curious? Oh, oh my God! You've really thrown me a googly there. Um, well, and give it to give you a little pause of <laughs> thinking time. Uh, one of the one of the many things that I wanted to talk to you about, which I didn't get around to doing, was you talking. Uh, I read some of the uh, the sort of guidebooks that you use for researching lost lanes you put i saw a a picture online of all your very niche old school kind of guidebooks and um, quirky things and i find that that sort of that's something that's very shines through in your lost lanes books is the fact that you've you've read widely around it and it's not just how to get from a to b and a good yeah i mean there's an awful lot of info that's enough books are great there are an awful lot of there's an awful lot of information um that isn't on the internet. Um, I mean, M- Maria Popova, who does the brain pickings um, website, is a big mm. advocate of that that point of view, um, and I, I totally uh, agree with her. And I think I guess I'm going to I'm going to pick a book called English Country Lanes, um, 
the I think it's the art of slow travel, uh, and it's by a guy called Gareth Lovett Jones, and he's also written other books about exploring the abandoned railways and canals of the UK in the 1980s, and he takes beautiful photographs, black and white photographs, and it's really weird when I discovered this book because a reader, a Lost Lanes reader, um, mentioned it to me last year, in fact, and I discovered it, and it was like kind of di- discovering this book that that like, I, I think on the one hand it's like the gospel of that I that I adhere to so it's like suddenly discovering you know Moses's tablets of stones I'm probably mixing my biblical metaphors here but um it, having already kind of become a worshipper so so it's like a revelatory thing and I think I feel like if I if I had a dis, if I had discovered this book before I'd written my own book I may have been so discouraged by its brilliance that I wouldn't have actually mm. written my own book. So I'm actually glad I came to it late. And it presents a really interesting anti, sort of anti-guidebook, but it's a way of reading and interpreting and decoding the countryside on a bicycle and thinking about yourself in the, in the landscape and what to see. Um, and it's just a brilliant, a brilliant, mad book. And I, I, unfortunately, um, I mentioned it and I did some readings from it during um, an Instagram live I did at the uh, when I was launching Lost Lanes North, because I just said that this book I've discovered is pretty, it's amazing. I'm going to read some stuff about it. Um, and typical of me probably to re- read someone else's book during my book launch. But there we are. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Don't buy my so book. Everyone this one's better. went on to Abe Books and bought them all. Um, so they've gone up rather in price because they used to be about, you know, you could pick them up for three or four quid. Um, but now they're more like 25 quid. Um, but I'm sure that I'm sure the, the stocks will be, you know, resupplied on Abe books. But yeah, that's what I would say. Um, that's a real eye opener. It was a real eye opener for me. And I, I also, if anyone who's listening to this podcast knows the location of Gareth Lovett Jones, I would love to write him a letter and potentially meet him. But I would just love to just write him a letter. Um, so maybe they, the listener can help with that. Oh, brilliant. Thank you, Jack. Well, I think that is just the perfectly niche, <laughs> wise eccentricity that I aspire to uh, on this podcast and in life in general. So I think that's a perfect uh, point for us to end on. Thank you so much, Jack, for keeping me company on this sunny dusk evening up in my treehouse from your um Man- well, no, see, the place we call it the secret, secret garden. garden. It's just a, it's just a bit of overgrown garden. land with a few apple trees and a river. But yeah. Oh, well, an, on a on a summer's evening at dusk, that could be a very good secret garden. So, thanks so much, Jack, for sharing all your thoughts and uh, encouraging us to get out and explore locally. Um, thanks very much, Jack. It's been a pleasure, Al. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Living Adventurously. If you did, please do rate and review the series on your podcast app. It really helps. Please also take a quick screenshot right now and send it to any of your friends who might appreciate listening. There are dozens of episodes for them to dip into. And if you enjoy mulling over the questions on my deck of cards, you can now try them out yourself. I've put them all into a notebook for living adventurously, which you can buy on my website. And whilst you're there, why not sign up for one of my three email newsletters or two other podcast series? Okay, enough of the sales talk. Thank you very, very much indeed 
for listening to Living Adventurously. I hope you'll come again soon.